Once more, good morning, everyone. Welcome to you. God bless you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being at the Franklin campus. How much we love you and love what you're doing for the kingdom of the Lord. Pastor Eric, we love you. God bless you. Let's do something a little bit different. Open your Bibles to the book of Esther. Book of Esther. I want to take the congregation through a, uh, a short Bible study uh, for several weeks here, uh, beginning with the first chapter, first, book, first verse of the book of Esther. We're going to go through all ten chapters. We're going to move through verse by verse this whole book in the Old Testament. So grab your Bibles, grab somebody else's Bible, take a Bible out of the pew in front of you if there is one, and you follow along. We're going to dig into God's Word in a way a little bit different than what we've done on a typical Sunday morning in the book of Esther. How many of you have ever read? Read the book of Esther? Probably, probably about half of us, probably some of those uh, were fibbing a little bit. Uh, Esther's not a book we read very much. It's just not a book that's often preached. Uh, it's just not a book for, that for some reason has grabbed uh, the largest part of the, of the Christian church. But that is an oversight and something we need to correct. This is an important and a beautiful, beautiful book in all of Scripture. It's a little bit different, and, and probably that's why preachers haven't always preached it. It's different in one very important way of all of of the books of the Bible, Esther is the only, only book in the Bible that never ever says the name of God, not even one time. God's name is never mentioned, and there are reasons for that, and we'll talk about them as we go, but the book of Esther never mentions God's name. As a matter of fact, it never mentions most of the things that you expect to find in a story in the Bible. Nobody is said to pray, nobody goes to worship. Nobody speaks of God. It's the most amazing book because on the first hand, when you read through it, it's hard to find God anywhere. And so it begs the question, if you can't find God anywhere, then where is God? Well, he's everywhere, and that's what we find in the book of Esther. When you don't see God anywhere, turns out he's everywhere. And that's exactly what the book of Esther teaches us. The other thing that's different about the book of Esther is that the hero is a... Teenage girl, you said woman, Esther sounds like your grandmother's name, but actually Esther's a teenage girl. This is a teenager story. Esther's a a young girl, a teenage girl, an orphan Jewish girl far, far away from her home. And she becomes queen and she changes the world. It's a great story. Will you dig in with me? Esther chapter 1, verse 1. Let's jump in. These events happened in the days of King Xerxes, who reigned over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Ethiopia. Okay, can we just stop right there? Can we just stop right there? Um, what are we doing here? It's the Old Testament. We expect to be reading about the people of God. We expect to be somewhere in the land that's called the Promised Land. Wasn't the whole point of taking the children of Israel out of Egypt to take them into the Promised Land, into Palestine? Why are we over here somewhere in Persia, stretched out from India to Ethiopia? Why are we here? Well, a little bit of background. Remember that the word Old Testament, Testament's another word for covenant. We're reading about the Old Covenant. A covenant is an agreement, an agreement between God and his people. And the covenant was very, very simple. God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. It was just that simple. And as long as the people would walk with God and follow his ways, they would live under his blessing. And that was God's promise. I will be your God. And as your God, I will bless you and I will protect you and I will prosper you and you'll be my people. But remember, 
The people broke the covenant. It wasn't God. It wasn't any part of God's uh, covenant that he was not faithful to. It was the people who were not faithful to God. And so the covenant is broken. And because it's broken, God, through much of the Old Testament, through much of what is written in the Old Covenant that we have in our hands, through much of Scripture, God is trying to bring his people back, trying to renew and restore his people. But they would not be restored. They would not turn back to God. They would not forsake their sin, forsake their other gods in order to follow the one true God. So ultimately... They have to face the consequences of their sin. The covenant is broken. They will not be God's people. So therefore, they do not enjoy God's blessings. They are defeated, conquered, and the land, the scripture says, vomits them out. That promised land that God gives them can no longer be their home if they won't walk with God. So they become exiled. They're all over the place. So by the time we get to the book of Esther... There is no holy land, you understand? They they are no longer living in a promised land. They no longer have their temple. All of that is gone. The people are scattered as far away as Persia. That's why Esther takes place in the land of Persia. But, 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 But before that, the first three words, these events happened. Stop right there. Does anything ever just happen? This is a common way of starting a story in, in, in the Hebrew language. It's sort of like saying once upon a time. In, in, in the Hebrew language, you start a story by saying it happened. And that's what Esther does. These events happened, that they happened. But, but does anything ever just happen? It's one of the big questions of the book of Esther. These events just happen? I'm 45 years old. I'll be 46 next month. It's amazing when I look back over my life. Uh, on the one hand, as I live my life, things seem random, and it's just odd how things happen, and you never know how things will turn out. But when I look back over my life, there's an amazing kind of design to circumstances, things that at this time seemed absolutely by chance, things that seemed sort of random. When I look back, th- there's less randomness to it than I probably imagined when, when I was living. There's absolutely a kind of pattern and design. When I look back over my life and its circumstances, just like you I see a purpose that seems to run through everything. It's amazing how things turn out in such a way to bring me to this place, to bring me to a a place where I can serve God and enjoy salvation and, and, and enjoy my ministry with you. It's amazing how I got here. And I look back over my life and, and things that just seem so circumstantial really don't seem to be circumstantial at all. There's a purpose that runs through every moment of my whole life. Would you say the same thing about your life? Show me your hands. Absolutely. There's just not a lot of circumstantial happening. So when the scripture says these events just happen, does anything ever just happen? But, But wait a minute, because I know you agreed with what I just said, but I'm not sure you're going to agree with what I say next. And so I want you to listen, because what I just said in some ways begins to raise problems for for some of us. And even when I look over my life, everything I said is true. There's a purpose that runs through everything. And I can't say that that things just happen because everything sort of seems to come together in the most wonderful way. But at the same time, there are things that have happened in my life that really trouble me. I hear people say frequently, everything happens for a reason. And some of you would say that. Everything happens for a reason. And I agree with you to a point. 
There are Christians who say that, that God causes everything to happen, that everything happens because God is sovereign, and therefore no matter what happens, God brings it. And that's the point where I begin to have some trouble. Now let's be very, very careful and very, very humble. We're talking now in a very deep way about God's ways with the world, the way God thinks, the way God operates, and it will always be a mystery to you and me. We can never completely understand God's thoughts or God's ways. God's ways, they are beyond us. So be real careful. But I have a really hard time looking back over my life or looking at some of your lives or just thinking about life in general. I have a hard time going with the folks who say that God just causes everything, that God brings everything, that God is the source of everything. Because I really don't believe that's what the Bible leads me to believe. I'm not sure that that's what Scripture teaches. Because basically, I think we would all say there is sin. There is sin. And sin, by its very definition, are the things that we think or the things that we do, the things that occur in the world that are outside of God's will. Would you agree with that? Sin is outside of God's will. So whenever we're talking about the, the forces of evil or the forces of sin, these are things that are outside of God's will. In other words, there are things that happen in the world that God does not choose, things that God does not want. And I would say that when we get to the book of Esther, the first thing you've got to recognize is that God never intended his people to wind up in exile in Persia. That was a result of their sin. Their sin has taken them there. So what am I saying? Am I saying that God is not sovereign? Am I saying that God is not in control? That's not what I'm saying. But I would say that, that I'm not sure that God causes everything that happens. I think sometimes I cause things to happen through my sin that God never chose. Talking to a man who cheated on his wife with the secretary, got his secretary pregnant, and then he says to me, I don't understand why God's doing this to me. Excuse me? Excuse me? I don't think God ever wanted you to cheat on your wife and get your secretary pregnant. I don't think you can say, why is God doing this to me? Do you understand what I'm saying? I don't think God causes everything that happens. I don't think God chooses everything that happens, but I will say this, God will always determine what happens next. God will always determine what happens next. And while I would not say that God causes everything, I will say this, God will use everything. God will use everything, every circumstance, everything that happens, God will bring it into his great sovereign ultimate purpose. I look back over my life, there are moments that I chose for myself that I'm sure God did not choose for me. The path took me in dark places. I chose that darkness rather than the light. There are times when I've chosen sin and evil and wickedness, and I have stepped off of the path. But in the most amazing way, standing here today, I can say that God was still able, always able to use every circumstance to bless me, to bring me to a place where he would continue to, to redeem me and bring my soul back home. I'm not sure God causes everything, but he uses everything for his purposes, for his plan. God is sovereign. What that means is there is not a thing you can do, not a sin, not a choice, nothing you can do that can ultimately throw off his desire, his plan to bless and save your life. He can use everything, and he does. 
So I look back over my life, you look back over your life, all kinds of things happen. Some of those things God may not have chosen, but God still can use it. Every circumstance, every moment, God can fold that into his purpose. The scripture says, in everything, God works together for good. In everything, that doesn't mean everything is good, but it means in everything, God is going to be at work, and God will turn that around for the good, for those who love him. God can use everything. So in the book of Esther, we find God's people in a place they never should have been, by choices that they never should have made, now in a path that God never promised, but that's where they are. And you're going to see God work. Now in this whole first chapter, the main character, the woman Esther, the young girl Esther, hasn't even made an appearance yet. You don't meet her until the next chapter. But understand, God is already beginning to work in circumstances, and it's amazing. It's the doctrine that we call providence, providence. The word providence, that, that prefix pro means before, that the second part, vidence, it has to do with all of those words that pertain to vision, words like video and, and, and visual. Providence literally means to see before, to see before. So God is able to see before. He can look down the road for you. He knows what's coming. And therefore, God, in his sovereign plan and purpose, has already seen how he'll take care of you, how he'll save you, how he'll work everything out for the good. So watch God work in the circumstances in a Persian palace. Esther chapter 1. Would you all like me to get started now? Esther chapter 1, verse 1. These events happened. In the days of King Xerxes, who reigned over 127 provinces stretching from India to Ethiopia. At that time, Xerxes ruled his empire from his royal throne at the fortress of Susa. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. He invited all the military officers of Persia and Media, as well as the princes and nobles of the provinces. The celebration lasted 180 days. A tremendous display of the opulent wealth of his empire and the pomp and splendor of his majesty. When it was all over, the king gave another banquet for all the people, from the greatest to the least who were in the fortress of Susa. It lasted for seven days and was held in the courtyard of the palace garden. Listen to this. The courtyard was beautifully decorated with white cotton curtains and blue hangings, which were fastened with white linen cords and purple ribbons to silver rings embedded in marble pillars. Gold and silver couches stood on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Drinks were served in gold goblets of many designs, and there was an abundance of royal wine reflecting the king's generosity. By edict of the king, no limits were placed on the drinking, for the king had instructed all his palace officials to serve each man as much as he wanted. At the same time, Queen Vashti gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of Xerxes. You get the picture here? Huge, huge, opulent festival banquet for everybody in the kingdom, but it's two separate meals, two separate banquets. All of the men are in one party with the king, and all of the women, another party with the queen. Verse 10. On the seventh day of the feast when King Xerxes was in high spirits because of the wine, y'all know what that means? He told the seven eunuchs who attended him, Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abaktha, Zathar, and Carcass, to bring Queen Vashti to him with the royal crown on her head. 
He wanted the nobles and all the other men to gaze on her beauty, for she was a very beautiful woman. Okay, stop right here. I don't know how to, I just hate to offend church people, but I want you to understand what this says, what this implies. When the king wants the queen to come over to the men's party so all the men can see her beauty, I don't know how to say this to you. He wants her to wear the crown on her head and nothing else. You understand? He wants her to do the dance of the seven veils without the veils. Just the crown on her head and nothing else. One of the nobles and all the other men to gaze on her beauty, for she was a very beautiful woman. But when they conveyed the king's order to Queen Vashti, she refused to come. This made the king furious and he burned with anger. Pooped his party, verse 13. He immediately consulted with his wise advisors who knew all the Persian laws and customs, for he always asked their advice. The names of these men were Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarsus, Marius, Marsena, and Mimukin, seven nobles of Persia and Medea. They met with the king regularly and held the highest positions in the empire. What must be done to Queen Vashti, the king demanded? What penalty does the law provide for a queen who refuses to obey the king's orders, properly sent through his eunuchs? Maybe you can answer the king and his nobles. Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also every noble and citizen throughout your empire. Okay, listen to this complaint. Women everywhere will begin to despise their husbands when they learn that Queen Vashti has refused to appear before the king. Before this day is out, the wives of all the king's nobles throughout Persia and Medea will hear what the queen did, and they'll start treating their husbands the same way. There will be no end to the contempt and anger. Y'all see what's happening here? So if it pleases the king, we suggest that you issue a written decree, a law of the Persians and Medes that cannot be revoked. It should order that Queen Vashti be forever banished from the presence of King Xerxes and that the king should choose another queen more worthy than she. When this decree is published throughout the king's vast empire, husbands everywhere, whatever their rank, will receive proper respect from their wives. King and his nobles thought this made good sense, so he followed Mimukin's counsel. He sent letters to all parts of the empire, to each province in its own script and language, proclaiming that every man should be the ruler of his home and should say whatever he pleases. You wanted to say amen, but you stopped yourself. Men. And I think that was wise. I want to focus first on King Xerxes, rhymes with Xerxes, you understand? A couple of weeks ago, we were looking at King Belshazzar, and it's a very similar kind of situation. You have the king of the world, literally. Remember with Belshazzar, he was having his great feast with the handwriting on the wall, and all that was going on while there was an enemy at the gate? Well, the enemy was Persia. The enemy was Persia. So now we're looking at King Xerxes. This is the empire, the kingdom that defeated Babylon. And if Babylon was the greatest kingdom in the world then, Persia is now the greatest kingdom in all the world. And King Xerxes is the greatest king in the earth, or so he says. Now, one of the cool things about the book of Esther is that it's very well documented in the history. We have found the remains of Xerxes' palace, the very palace described here. We found it in Susa. We've even found the cornerstone of his palace. And on the cornerstone, guess what this dude wrote? I am Xerxes, king of the earth. 
That's what he says. I alone am king. And he goes on to say he's king of every country, king of every tongue, every language, king of the whole earth. Yeah. He's a powerful, powerful man. At the beginning of the story, he is throwing a party that would rival all parties ever. It's a six-month-long affair. Now, it's more than just a celebration. We know from historical documents that this is indeed a war council. That's why the party at first involves only military officials. King Xerxes is planning a mighty campaign against the Greek empire. He's about to make war against the Greeks, and this is a war council. And he's bringing together all of the military officials from all across the Persian kingdom. It takes months to gather. That's why the council takes so long. And while he's got his officials gathered and all the men who will fight for him, he must gain their allegiance by impressing them with his power. And that is why this whole council, this whole affair, becomes this massive display of his power, his wealth. And this is an incredibly wealthy man. Understand, this war council to plan the war against the Greeks, the Greeks, they're going to lose. King Xerxes is going to lose, and it's going to bankrupt him. But, but we have Greek historians who write about the war, and they write about these gold couches that are mentioned in Scripture. The Greeks saw them, and they wondered, why in the world, if the Persians have golden couches, why would they ever need to come and conquer us in our poverty? He's the king of the whole earth, he thinks, the king of everything. One of the important parts of the story in Esther is that this is a man who can't be wrong. Understand, he can't be wrong. Whenever the king says something, it can never be taken back. It can never be revoked because he can't be wrong. If you grew up in the 70s like me, you grew up with happy days. You remember the Fonz? Remember that there were words that Fonzie could not say? Fonzie could not say, I was roo-roo-roo. You remember? He could not say, I was roo-roo-roo. He could not say, I was wrong. Xerxes is a man who can't be wrong. Or so he thinks. It's amazing. He wants to show off all the things that he owns, and he wants to show off all of his power. So follow this, follow this, because we're coming to you in just a minute. Wants to show off everything that he owns, and so he drags out the golden couches and drags out the good china and this incredible display of all of his power. And then in his drunkenness, after several days of this, he finally decides to bring out perhaps what is his prized possession. And I emphasize possession. To this king, his wives, his women are, are not companions. They are possessions to be shown, to be displayed, to be used. This is a man who has no relationships. He just takes people and uses them. And so he commands that Queen Vashti come out. This is sort of the interesting part. Vashti's name in Persian means sweetheart, sweetie. So truly she is his favorite wife, at least for the moment. She's his sweetheart. But he commands her to do something absolutely shameful, absolutely despicable, even in his culture. He commands her to come out naked and entertain all of the men of the kingdom to come out wearing nothing but her crown, which would be incredibly shameful in a Persian culture. Simply to come out and show her body to every man in the kingdom. He does this because he's drunk. He does this because he thinks somehow if everybody sees how beautiful she is, that's going to reflect well on him. He's only interested in making himself look like a big man. 
But the amazing thing is, this man who is so powerful, this big, big man, this wealthy man, this man is brought down with a single word, and the word is no. No. Isn't that amazing? For all of his power, all of his wealth, he can't stand to hear the word no. you got to hand it to Queen Vashti. Because she finally does what nobody ever does to this man. She just says, no. It is a dangerous person who cannot tolerate to hear the word no. This is where we come to some of you. It is a dangerous person who cannot tolerate to be told the word no. If you think that you must always have your way, then God can never have his way with your life. And you are headed for disaster. King Xerxes is a man who's never been told no before. Nobody tells him no. You need to understand the courage that it takes for Queen Vashti to do this because he has the power to kill her. This is a theme in this book. This man has ultimate power over everybody in his sight, everybody in the world. He can have the power over their life or their death. He can command her killed, and she knows that. But there reaches a point where she would rather simply die than be humiliated by this man one more day. Do you understand that? You can't tell him no. Nobody tells him no. Are you that guy? Are you that guy, and honestly, it's not just guys. One of the most amazing women I ever met was in the middle of her marriage failing, in the middle of everything in her life crumbling. But I asked her, I said, what do you think the problem is? What is it that makes you so always unsatisfied? You know what she told me? She said, I I can tell you why I'm never satisfied. It's because nobody's ever told me no. She knew that about herself. The tragedy was she wasn't about to let anybody start now. It is a dangerous person who cannot be told no. Some of you are that person. You want your way everywhere. And in every moment, you've got to have your way. Nobody tells you no. They've never told you no. And you're not going to start listening to the word no no now. You're going to have your way. And you're going to be one day completely alone and ruined. You can't live like this. It's one of the obligations for us as parents. It's one of the most difficult things. We love those little children. Those are just cutest little boogers. But you know what? you got to tell the little booger no. You have to be the parent. You have to raise that child able to hear the word no. Have you ever seen parents who just can't do that? Have you ever seen that parent? I'm telling you, they're at Walmart every Saturday. Every Saturday, all the parents without a control kids, they're at Walmart. Just go be there. Just, just take your kids. You'll fit in. Because it's very difficult for some of us as parents ever to say the word no. We're so afraid of hurting their feelings. We're so afraid somehow that they won't like us. And we are raising and creating monsters. Monsters. Just ask the people in line with you at Walmart. We all know you're raising a monster. 
Because you're raising a child who never hears the word no. They've never heard it. Nobody's ever drawn a line and say, this is as far as you go and no further. This child never learns any boundaries. This child thinks that she is the queen of the world, the princess of everything. Your son thinks that he is the prince of everything, and you're creating a monster. And some of you now, you are that grown-up. You are that person that's never been told no. And you're headed for trouble. You can't have relationships. You understand that? Because relationships can't be built on control. And if you always have to be in control, then you can't love people. Love is not control. You say, I love you, but what you mean is, I control you. And that's different. There's no love in that. You don't try to control what you love. King Xerxes cannot even be told the word no. Notice how everything comes to a screeching halt. Notice how he becomes totally unglued. Notice how the whole kingdom seems to kind of begin to topple a little bit when somebody finally tells the man no. But notice how all the men, every man, understand, every man in the whole kingdom is there, and they just saw all of this, and so did all of the women, and that's the concern. Oh, my goodness. All of the women just heard Queen Vashti tell her husband, no, when I get home, it's going to be bad. I will never get the remote again. That's what the men are thinking. My goodness, what happens if all the other women find out they can stand up? What's going to happen? Interesting. Which leads us to the woman named Sweetheart, Vashti. She does today what she's probably never, ever done in her life. She tells him no. She tells him no. And she's right to do so. He is asking her to do what is wrong. In his drunkenness, he is asking her to humiliate herself for his entertainment. And that is wrong. And she should never agree to that. But, but let's just be honest enough to say that's been her whole life to this point. In coming chapters, we're going to find out how the king goes about finding a new queen. It's a humiliating process. And it's not good for women. Do you understand? In the story of Esther, women are property. In the story of Esther, women are not characters. They're not people who make choices. They are possessions of the king, always simply possessions of the king. And that's what Vashti has been her whole life, his possession. She's simply there to look beautiful for him, but she doesn't have a real marriage to him. She can't even come into his presence until he asks for her by name. And he'll only call for her when he wants one thing. This is no marriage. And Vashti has never, ever done what she does today. If she ever had, she wouldn't be where she is. She tells him no. Her whole life has circled somehow around this man and giving him exactly what he wants. Her whole life has been about looking beautiful for him. Her whole life has been about this man until the day she stands up and says no. Y'all getting nervous, aren't you? What is it? about her that makes her so willing to give up everything for him. I think what is in the center of Vashti is the same thing that's in the, in the center of a lot of women. It's just this, uh, can I say, just empty heart. Vashti is a woman like a lot of women. She, she just feels empty and worthless. She really, really does. She feels empty and worthless. 
And, and because of the fall and because of the curse on the woman, if you've ever read the book of Genesis, how the scripture says that from this day on that, that Eve's desire will be for, for the man, there is this in the heart of so many women that this real desire to, to be worth something, to be precious, to be cherished. And she often looks for that in relationships, and mostly relationships with men. Surely y'all have been around long enough. I don't really have to tell you these things. But so many women, that they feel so worthless, and they just long to be cherished, and they long to feel like that they're valuable somehow to somebody. And so they often begin to latch on to a man, a man who will make her feel like she's worth something, a man who might fill her up. And this is the problem, because an empty woman, an empty woman will only attract one kind of man. What kind of man is that? An empty man. An empty woman will always only attract an empty man. And there you have a recipe for misery when an empty man hooks up with an empty woman. If you are that woman, that woman who feels worthless, that woman who just longs to be cherished, you've got to understand that emptiness inside of you is no place that any man can ever fill up. A man is not going to fill you up. A man is not going to satisfy that desire in your heart to be cherished, to be worth something. The man can't do that. And if he tries, understand he's as empty as you are. He can't give you what he doesn't have. Vashti's whole life, trying to please the man, trying to be the queen of something by somehow finding a man and, and focusing on him and doing everything to please him and just somehow revolving around in the orbit of his glory. But this is not a man of glory. This is a man of weakness, a man of incredible weakness. We have an empty woman with an empty man, and it's going to be bad. Vashti does an amazing thing. It's the kind of thing that's going to make all the difference in the book of Esther when finally the girl, finally the woman, refuses simply to be invisible, refuses to be treated as worthless. She stands up and simply says no. To the man who's never been told no, she stands up and says no. And she's right to do it. And she's right to do it. The problem is, as far as we know, Vashti didn't have anybody else. Her punishment, which will never be revoked, is banishment. She'll just never, ever see King Xerxes again. She'll never be in his presence again. She's banished forever. That does not mean she's going home. Do you understand? She'll be more or less a prisoner the rest of her life in a palace, a beautiful, luxurious prison. And honestly, for a lot of you, that describes your house. Vashti doesn't get what she wants from the only man in her life, and then she loses the man, and now she's nowhere. Understand that? Now she's nowhere. She's simply going to be replaced. You don't want to be that woman. You listening to me? You don't want to be that woman. You cannot look to any man in the world to fill up what is empty inside of you. Only God can fill you up. Only God can complete you. 
women, Scripture says that God created you, created Eve as the crown of creation, the very last and most beautiful thing that God ever made, and we all agree with that, was the woman. You were created as the crown of his creation. You were created to bear his image in the world. You have worth because God loves you and because God himself says that you are worth everything, worthy enough to die for. If you will not find yourself complete in him, you will never find yourself complete anywhere else with anybody else. No one can fill you but, but God himself. I'm not just talking to women. There are empty men in this house today. Empty men in the sound of my voice. You're, you're empty. And you're always trying to prove yourself a man somehow. You, you prove yourself a man by, by, by the stuff you own, by the truck you drive. You really think that truck adds something to you. The, the house that you live in, the yard that you keep, the job that you keep, you somehow think that all of this makes you something, that this makes you more of a man. And if you can't find it anywhere else, then you try to prove yourself a man simply by, by conquest of women, by trying to take women and use them up. But don't you understand, you can't use up enough women to ever make up for what's missing inside of you. You're an empty man, and the emptiness inside of you can only be filled by God himself. There's not enough money. There's not enough praise for you at work. There aren't enough women that you can use up. There's just not enough in the world to fill up what's empty inside of you. Do you understand what I'm saying to you, man? Empty men and empty women can only be filled from one place, and that is the God who, was, who himself created us so that he could fill us up. This story begins in a horrible place. It begins with broken, empty people and all of their wealth and all of their power and in all of their desire to look like something and act like something and prove that there's something. They are nothing. They are not in control. They are not even wealthy. These are, of all people, most impoverished because they're empty. In all of the ways that matter, empty. Some of you in this house today are just as empty. And I want you to understand, there's only one, only one who can fill you up. There's only one who can make your life come together. Only one who can take away that horrible sense of worthlessness and guilt. Only one who can take away that horrible sense of weakness and never ever being able to prove yourself. Only one. And he is the Lord. The one who made you. The one that you turn from and run from. He's the only one that can give you what you're looking for. I'm asking you today to turn to him. Before you continue to, to figure out how to fix your husband, why don't you let God fix what's broken in you? Before you try to figure out how to fix this wife of yours, why don't you let God fix what is broken in you? As a single person, before you go and attach yourself to one more empty woman, one more empty man, why don't you let God fill up what is empty inside of you? You know what emptiness is. The invitation today is to discover what it means to be filled, to be satisfied, to be loved, to have something and be something forever. And this is what we call salvation. You'll only find it through Christ. Will you turn to him? 
Will you call upon him? Will you give up this game that you've been playing with people and this game you've been playing with life? Will you not just get serious with the Lord? You feel worthless? You feel broken? Empty? I'm telling you, turn to the Lord. He will fix everything broken in you. He alone, everything broken in you. Pray with me. I don't know why we're so stubborn, Lord. I don't know why we continue to think somehow that possessions will make us happy, that, that a, a bigger apartment, a different house, a new car, more children, a man, a woman, different hair color, a, a week in the tanning bed, a week in Florida, more money, alcohol, drugs, something, Lord, anything, a lottery ticket, food. Lord, we just look to everything. Because of this hunger in us, this desire to prove ourselves somehow as men or somehow to fill ourselves up as women, Lord, we continue, Lord, in our emptiness to wander through the world finding no satisfaction, no fulfillment, Lord. We only find ourselves getting emptier and emptier by the day. Lord Jesus, I pray for men in this house, men who've never heard the word no. Nobody ever tells them no, and Lord, they don't expect to hear the word no today. Lord, I pray that you would break the prideful heart of men and women in this house who think that nobody can draw a line that they can't cross. Lord, people who think that nobody, nobody can ever stand up in their face and not give them their way. Lord, I pray that we will give up our way so that you can have your way in us. Oh God, those of us who are so stubborn, so prideful, or break our pride so that we can know what it is to love and be loved. God, for those in this house who are empty, empty women and empty men who continue, Lord, to hook up with another empty man, another empty woman, Lord God, I pray that you'll break that cycle so that we can find ourselves filled in you. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would fall down thick in this place now. I pray that you'd speak to hearts, that you would bend and break and mold hearts, that we might, Lord, find ourselves in your presence, won over by your love and your grace. Lord Jesus, help us to surrender to you today, to turn to you, to open our hearts to you, that you might fill us up. Fill our hearts, Lord Jesus. We pray in your holy name. Amen.